Have you ever gone through something that was so new and challenging that you wondered if you would make it to the end? I can remember my first year in college at Moody, how I kept having to remind myself, thousands of people have gone through this school before. Thousands of people have done this before me. It's helpful when we know that others have made it through that season before us. It's also even more so helpful when we have those people in our lives that have made it through a similar season. Maybe for you it was boot camp. Maybe it was recovery from a serious surgery, something like a joint replacement or open heart surgery. Maybe it was the loss of a spouse. In all of these, we find fortitude in our forerunners. We find comfort in camaraderie. The resurrection of Christ is timeless truth of hope. Someone walked through the darkest moments of life, its very end, and he made it through and returned to life again in his own power. And he did so specifically so that we can too. The resurrection of Christ is timeless truth for any troubled times because it assures us that our greatest trouble, death, has been conquered. Our verses here are moving from hypothetical statements that we looked at previously, all the what ifs. What if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? What if we are not raised from the dead with him who trust in Christ? It moves from these hypothetical what if statements to the certainties. Christ was raised from the dead. Those who follow Christ will be raised from the dead as well. So we read in verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him under him, that God may be all in all. From our verses, I hope you can be encouraged by God's game plan, rejoicing in our sure victory. In the 20th century, because of the expansion of the British Empire, making one colony after another throughout the world, it was said the sun never sets 
on the British Empire. This meant that every section of the world, wherever the sun was shining, there was a colony of the United Kingdom. The same could be said for God's rule over the entire universe. But he's not ruling in a visible way, like the Union Jack would fly over the land of the Queen. Still, one day, God's rule will be inescapably visible. His victory will be profoundly present for all eternity in every square inch of the universe. The question for each of us is this. Will we be able to rejoice in it? Will you be able to rejoice in it? Or will you be completely separated from him, cast away into the lake of fire? If you will be rejoicing with God in the eternal, visible reign of his universal empire, you can rejoice now. Followers of Christ can rejoice. We can rejoice now because he has made it plain to us now. Knowing Christ, you can rejoice that you will be resurrected. We see this in verses 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. When it talks about the fact that Christ has been raised, the tense here is that it's been completed, but it carries the full effect far into the future. Not only did Christ raise on a certain day in history, he continues permanently as the victorious, risen Lord. And we're being reassured here in these verses that Christ rose from the dead and why we will rise from the dead if we aren't alive at his coming when he raptures his church. As a follower of Christ, you can rejoice in your resurrection because in our verses, you can see the assurance of your resurrection. Notice, as descendants of Adam... Everybody dies. How does a person know that they qualify for Adam's consequence? They're going to die. And it applies to everyone. No one can say, oh, no, he's not my forefather. Everyone is aging. Everyone, all of us, are going through a slow death. We are not getting any younger. So if the consequences of Adam applies to everyone... Do then the, does then the resurrection of Christ apply to everyone as well? Notice what verse 22 says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, if you want to be made alive through the power of Christ's resurrection, you must be in Christ You must recognize the fact that you cannot have a relationship with God in your own self because your own self is full of sin. 
Everything that you do, think, and say is tinged by sin, and God cannot have a relationship with anything that is sinful. He is perfectly holy, as Christ is perfectly holy. But Christ took your sin on himself when he died the penalty of your sin. And his resurrection from the dead proved that his death applies to the payment of your sin. And you can take on his righteousness in place of your sin. And you can stand before God in his righteousness, knowing Christ is your Savior. And it can apply to you that so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Think about how certain traits can be hereditary. Maybe a person's nose, their, their bra- the brow of their, of their forehead. I laugh like my dad. I get high cholesterol from my dad. So also our relationship with Adam, as sure as our physical birth proves that we are human, we cannot avoid what we have inherited from our forefather Adam, and that is death as a consequence of sin. But our relationship to Christ comes through spiritual rebirth just as much as our relationship with Adam comes through physical rebirth. This is why Christ tells Nicodemus in John 3, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. This is why we are told in John 1.12 that to all who receive him, we are given the right to be called children of God as if we were born originally into his family. And our names are then written into the very book of life. Also, I want you to see as a follower of Christ, you can rejoice in your resurrection because we see here in our verses, we can see the timing of your resurrection. He says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Remember here, first fruits talk about how the, the first harvest of a plant, the first harvest of a crop are representative of what the rest of that crop is going to be like. As one writer says, the destiny of Christians is connected with the destiny of Christ because he is the first fruits of believers. Verse 23 explains here how Christ accomplished being the first of many who would be resurrected. Adam is the first of all who would die. He is the first of all of mankind who dies in our, we die in our sins. Christ is the first of all who are in him and shall be made alive. When it talks about each in his own order, the term here refers to military rank, the higher rank preceding first. Jesus, the one and only highest ranked, he is in an order all on his own. And then those who belong to Christ would follow him. As we're told about in John 14, 1 through 3, where he says to his disciples and to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When he talks about that this will be at his coming, he is talking about the rapture of the church. As Warren Wearsby says, when Jesus Christ returns in the air, he will take his church to heaven and at that time raise from the dead all who have trusted him and have died in the faith. At that point, at this rapture, those who have already died and those who are remaining on the earth, we will receive glorified bodies at that point. And we'll look in a moment at the timeline of which all of these fall into. But let me just summarize these verses here by saying this. By his resurrection, Jesus Christ has allowed the opportunity for the spiritually dead to come back to life. And his resurrection power is more than enough for any who trust in him to be made spiritually alive now and to be physically resurrected with him even after we have physically died. Rejoice that you will be resurrected. I'm reminded of the, the older saint, the lady in Rapid City, where we ministered there uh, 10 years ago. And she had been told by her doctors that there was nothing more that they were going to be able to do for her. Her illness was terminal, and it was only going to be a matter of time. And she happened to be told also by her financial planner that in only a matter of time, she was going to run out of money. So what did she do? She threw a homegoing party for herself. And there, with all of her friends surrounding her, she said, you know what? God is so good. He, he, he is in total control. I happen to know that my body and my finances are running out at about the same time. She could rejoice in this. She could rejoice in God's sovereign planning of her life. Why wasn't she worried? She was simply believing God's promises. His promises, like what Jesus himself says in John 6, where he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what she was believing. And that is the same as what we can believe in and rejoice in our future resurrection in, if we know Christ as our Savior. So what is being described here as the last day? What is the issue that is being addressed here in 1 Corinthians 15? Specifically when he talks about, and the end will come. It's somewhat vague. But it's talking about the end times. For those who pass away prior to Christ's return, they, will, they are immediately in God's presence. Yet they're waiting, if you will, for their glorified bodies. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for believers. Let me give you J.D.'s understanding here 
of the end times, okay? And, and I use Daniel 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, as many others do, as a roadmap, if you will, for the end times. We are living now in what could be called the church age. Christ will return for his saints who are still alive. And in Daniel 9, we see when God is going to deal again with Israel as his privileged people. And that requires, if you will, for the church to be removed, for God to deal with Israel as his privileged people again. This is what takes place at the rapture when the living saints that are on the earth as well as those saints who have passed away will be caught up together to meet Christ in the air. First Thessalonians describes the whole event in this way. In chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. After the rapture of the church, and when God works with Israel again for one final week, one final period of seven years, this begins the seven years of tribulation. Again, this is described in Daniel 9 as the last weeks of God dealing with his nation Israel. Within these seven years, for some of you who, who are interested about this, this is when we see the breaking of the seven seals of Revelation 6 through 8. It involves the four horses of the apocalypse. It involves the pouring out of seven bowls that you can read about in Revelation 16. These, this is when God's wrath is poured out on the earth. It's not poured out on the body of Christ because we're in heaven. We've been raptured from the earth at this point in the end times. At the end of these seven years, Christ's millennial reign is inaugurated with Christ's return, touching down physically the Lord of Lords, stepping onto the Mount of Olives once again, and with all of his saints in our glorified bodies returning with him. And he will reign from Jerusalem, and he will reign over a period of a thousand years. Now, there will be other people on the earth who aren't believers, and they aren't living in glorified bodies either during that time. And the devil will be bound. He will be subdued over those thousand years of Jesus' reign. But at the end of those thousand years, that millennial reign, the devil will be released and he will begin deceiving unsaved people of the earth. These unsaved that will have multiplied over these thousands of years. What begins the next period of time is the battle known as Armageddon. And you again can read about this in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16. There will be an army formed of all of the unbelieving people, having been deceived by the devil who had been released from his bondage. And they will unite to battle against Christ, their ruler. 
but they will be utterly destroyed. And this will lead into the final judgment of all unbelievers. This is referred to as the great white throne of judgment. You can read about this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This follows a second resurrection of the dead, but this resurrection of, is of all of those who do not believe in Christ and have died. Their resurrection is to judgment, not to life. Their resurrection and judgment is immediately followed by their sentencing. As I mentioned, Revelation 11 through 15 paints this scene of final judgment where we read, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake fire. So sadly we see there's two resurrections of the dead. There is one of believers who have trusted in Christ and with those believers that are living on the earth at that time, they are resurrected, given glorified bodies at Christ's return and they are raptured to be with him. And there is a resurrection of unbelievers prior to the great white throne of judgment. And as one writer says, nobody in the first resurrection will be lost, but nobody in the second resurrection will be saved. These end time events are referenced in verses 24 through 26 of our passage. And they're described somewhat out of order like bookends, if you will. What's most important to see is that because of knowing Christ, you can rejoice in God's victory. We see this in verses 24 through 28, where we read, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verses 24 through 26 bounce between key events. Still, they explain the reason for the delay in Christ's fulfillment of God's plans for victory. They explain the delay of the full display of the redemption of his people. They explain the delay of the full restoration of his original design. They explain the delay of the celebration of his ultimate victory. The following verses explain the greater purpose of all of God's victorious plan. Where we read in verses 27 through 28. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, there will never be an epic battle in the heavens for ultimate power, like what the Greeks would refer to in their pantheon of gods. And, and this would be the pantheon that the Corinthians would have been familiar with before coming to Christ. There is never going to be some epic battle between the members of the Godhead. We continue in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See that God's timing is perfect. And see the reason for his perfect timing is that he might receive maximum glory for his total victory. When verse 24 says, then comes the end. This is what I've talked about, kind of the vague bouncing between end time events. The end that's being described is the end of the end times. It's after destroying every rule and every authority and power. It's the completion of Christ's predicted reign and victory in Armageddon and the exercising of his judgment. It's the beginning of the eternal state, the totally new epic without sin and death being present. As a follower of Christ, you can rejoice in God's victory because in our verses, we see the assurance of God's victory. It says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In considering our timeline, when it says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This explains the necessity of the millennial reign of Christ in the fulfillment of prophecy, in displaying Christ as the king of all kings before the entire world. Leon Morris says this, No matter how strong the powers of the earth and hell may seem, no matter how much the Christian may fear that the wicked will triumph, at the climax of history, it is Christ and none other who reigns and must reign. Recall from verse 12 that there were some that said there is no resurrection. Here we read, for those who are in Christ, there will be no death, no eternal death. Imagine if you can that you're on a football team and your coach has a game plan and it is the game plan that you need for the biggest game of your team's history. Up against your biggest rival that's got the biggest, baddest player that your team has ever seen. And your coach shares with you his game plan and he says this, here's how it's going to work. We're all going to go out to the mouth of the tunnel and our star player is going to be the first to run out on the field. And then the rest of us are going to sit there and wait. 
And that star player, he, on his own, is going to win the game. He's going to take care of every foe. He's going to take care of every opposing player, everything that they might throw at him. And he's going to take care of it all by himself. And when that's done, the rest of us are going to run out onto the field and we're going to celebrate. You see, when Christ returns to reign, he will be, if you will, the star player. All of us, resurrected believers, will come in his wake and reign with him. And we, his clumsy sidekicks, will be sitting there probably with a look of awe on our faces. We're going to see at that time that Christ will dominate all of his enemies, including death, and he will do it with one swipe of his powerful arm, and his other arm will be resting by his side. Jesus will deal with the devil and death, the greatest enemies of all mankind, without a bead of sweat breaking on his brow. Last of all, I want to show you how, as followers of Christ, you can rejoice in God's victory because you can see in our verses the purpose of God's victory. We read in verse 28, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot of subjecting going on here. You might recall from our time in 1 Peter that the term to be subject means to be thrown under. Like when an army sergeant calls out, fall in, he's talking about fall in line, fall under the another person's higher rank. All beings will be in subjection to Christ except one. The triune God himself, the one who put all things in subjection under Christ. And yet, the triune God is the being of whom Christ is a member of. If, if that doesn't blow your mind a little bit, that's what the infinite God does to us. I think that part of the purpose of verse 28 is to show that with all of the earth-shaking events of the end times, it's all a part of the triune God's perfect plan. Verse 28 describes the final eternal state. Revelation 22 talks about it in this way, in verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. If you know Christ as your Savior, that's talking about you reigning with the triune God forever and ever. You know, it's interesting to me that verse 28 of our passage is the only place in all of his writings where the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the Son. It makes me think of the idea of a king 
reigning with his prince, the royal family, and the king giving his son, the prince, the right to bring everything under his rule. And once it's all under his active dominion, the prince then again, once again takes his place on his own throne next to the king. And all becomes officially ruled by the royal family, the triune God. Let me ask you, is the royal family ruling in your house right now? God's kingdom is here now, but it's not yet as it will be visibly, one day, free from sin. What's your world like right now? Right now, because of this isolation that we're experiencing, it's probably made up of only those in your home. Maybe you're all by yourself. Is Christ reigning there? 1 Corinthians 10.31 states, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. These times in life right now of slow isolation, one day just stacking onto another, wondering where it's going to lead. Do you see how there are times of less distraction, times that help us to see who is ruling my mind, who is ruling my heart? This is an opportunity to highlight for us in what parts of our lives we need to bow the knee once again to the king, the true ruler of the universe. Again, I encourage you, rejoice in God's victory. Everything is going to get wrapped up with all believers being bodily resurrected to eternal life in this way. Christ will destroy every one of his enemies with death itself, the last and greatest enemy being destroyed. After Christ has cleared the universe of sin and death, the triune God will be exalted for the full effect of his eternal rule. We were talking as a family recently about how three weeks ago, we never would have imagined what our life would be like right now. And we were encouraging ourselves a little bit that one day we're going to be looking back at right now and we're going to be remembering how strange it was. The fact is, when Christ returns, our world will be so different than what it is right now. I'm talking about when he raptures his church and when the dead in Christ come back to life and receive glorified bodies. In fact, when we all receive glorified bodies, that time frame that we will enter into is a completely different epoch of time than what we live in right now. We can't quite understand it right now. And in the same way, we won't be able to completely understand then why we live as we do now. We will see and know Christ as he truly is. And we will see ourselves as he sees us. Live now by faith in the one who is going to finally physically reign. Take risks for his glory in faith. Be generous for his kingdom in faith. Speak up for his purposes of the gospel during these days in faith. You will not regret then in that day a single moment. 
You will not regret then a single dollar. You will not regret then a single friendship that you invest now during these days for his kingdom. Our next stop on this ride that we call waiting for Jesus right now is described in 1 Thessalonians 4 as we looked at before. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, we're told, encourage one another with these words. If you know Christ, I hope that you are encouraged with these words that I've shared with you. If you don't know Christ personally as Savior, you need to understand that with his return, your opportunity to know him as he is comes to an end. I encourage you, I implore you to receive him as your Savior, to simply open up that conversation with him, understanding and confessing that you cannot walk in a relationship with him on your own because of your sin, recognizing that you need for your sins to be paid for and accepting the fact that he did pay for your sins on the cross and he offers you his righteousness. I simply encourage you to ask him for the forgiveness that can be yours so that you too can be encouraged by the fact that he will return and bring this time that we know to a close. Father God, send your Son. Come, Lord Jesus. But Lord, bring many more to know you before you do, I pray. I thank you, Father, that we serve now the King of the universe, that even though you are not visibly sitting on your throne for all people to see as you are now in faith. And I pray, Lord God, that we will live in faith sacrificing whatever you call us to lay on your altar for your kingdom and your glory. I pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.